All right, grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 13 this morning. Genesis chapter 13, if you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 9 in the pew Bible. Also, grab that all-in booklet and turn to page 55, and there's space for you to uh, take notes as we continue to look at the life of Abraham and what it means to be all-in for God and His kingdom, not only in the present, but uh, for uh, tomorrow. And uh, if there is uh, um, a better picture of being all in, I'm not sure there is one. Abraham is a man who, while not perfect, serves and honors God and makes decisions uh, to follow God and to trust God and to prioritize God. And he's going to live a life, and again, not with perfection. He's going to have lots of bumps and curves and and issues along the way. Uh, But he is going to show us what it means to be persistent in our desire to be all in for God um, in the days to come. And we're going to see that because uh, the pinnacle of Abraham's life is going to be after God fulfills his promise and gives Abraham and Sarah well beyond their years of childbearing a son in Isaac. Abraham's going to be willing to sacrifice it all, sacrifice his son back to the Lord as a picture of what it means for an individual to be all in. Now we know the rest of the story. God doesn't uh, require Abraham to do that and he offers a ram as a sacrifice for Abraham. But it's the commitment, it's the desire that I am going to live open-handed for God in all ways. And that's what, as elders, we're most excited about. As we endeavor to live lives that are all in for God, to see how God is going to take our obedience and our faithfulness and, and use it to bless us and those around us, to multiply the work that God is doing, not only here at Village Bible Church, uh, but to use our impact all across the world. Now we started this journey in Genesis chapter 12. If you weren't with us last week, we were introduced to Abraham. Abraham was a man who lived a pretty obscure life in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is northern Iraq in the modern world. He and his father were idol, not only idol worshipers, but idol manufacturers. Joshua tells us that they built idols for a living and that they had a great devotion uh, to Nana, the moon god and and so they're living life in their paganism they're living their life worshiping other gods and in genesis chapter 12 god comes to abram and he says to abraham listen abram abraham i want to do some great things in your life i want to take you from an ordinary life to an extraordinary life and i'm going to make some promises to you i'm going to give you a land that i'm going to show you you and your descendants will have this land i'm going to give you a son even though you're well beyond childbearing years i'm going to give you and your wife a son who will be the first of many descendants that I will bless through you. And third, I'm going to use you as the funnel of all of my blessings. And so as I bless you, Abraham, I'm going to use the blessing that I give to you to be funneled to all of the world, to all people, and you're going to be my funnel to see those blessings laid forth. And what we hear is, is that Abraham hears this message from God, And he does exactly what God calls him to. 
He does exactly what God leads him to. So he picks up him, his wife, Sarah, all of their possessions, and he even takes his son, uh, I'm sorry, his nephew, Lot, with him. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the dysfunction that came with that and maybe uh, some of the lack of faith that Abraham has for taking Lot with him. Well, they go and they land in Canaan in Genesis chapter 12, and God says, here's the land, and, and here's the place that I've promised. I want you to live here. And the text tells us that Abraham hears that from the Lord, and he makes camp, and he builds all, an altar to the Lord where he can worship and life is going well isn't that how it is we make a commitment to follow God and and life goes well and and things are moving ahead and 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 you and your God man things are good until that circumstance comes that unseen consequence of of an issue or a struggle or whatever it is for Abraham it was a famine in the middle of Genesis chapter 12 a famine hits Canaan now God never tells uh, Abraham to leave Canaan. He doesn't say in, in light of an emergency, then you need to leave. He says, I want you to stay here, not only you, but all of your descendants. So you're, this is going to be home for you. Don't leave. This is home base. But a famine comes, and instead of seeking God and understanding what God's will and plan for his life is, Abraham makes a decision on his own. Knowing that famine is striking the land of Canaan, he heads southwest to the land of Egypt to escape the famine. And as he does, so it is with so many of us, when we disobey God and don't live out the commands and virtues that God has for us, we put ourselves in a vulnerable situation. We put ourselves in issues and struggles and scenarios that had we been in the center of God's will in the first place, we would have never had to deal with. So Abraham leaves Canaan on his own. He heads down to Egypt and he takes his wife and Lot and all of his possessions with him. When they get into Egypt, it says that their um, arrival garners the attention. Well, it's really not Abraham or Lot's arrival or the livestock's arrival. It's the arrival of Sarah, a beautiful woman. And, uh, and it says that uh, they began to be attracted to Sarah. Now, Abraham saw this and was concerned because uh, since he was her husband, he figured that the Egyptians, to have Sarah, would just kill him, and he was afraid of dying and not being protected. So he says to Sarah, listen, Sarah, let's tell them that we're brother and sister. Then, whatever they do, uh, at least I won't die. And he does the unthinkable. He pawns off his wife as a sister and, and puts her into a situation where all kinds of abuse and defilement can take place. Well, God in His grace protects that whole ugly situation. And before anything can happen, before Sarah can be defiled, God brings upon Pharaoh's house, because she's so beautiful, she's placed into Pharaoh's harem, and before anything can happen, God protects Sarah, and he begins to plague Pharaoh's house with all types of issues and ailments and plagues. And whatever those plagues were, we're not told. But what Pharaoh knows and understands is that they came as a result of Sarah being in his house, and that Sarah herself is a married woman, and that Abraham and Sarah have lied to protect themselves, and Pharaoh's had enough of it. And at the end of chapter 12, Abraham, Sarah, Lot, and all of their possessions are kicked out of Egypt by Pharaoh. Now where are they going to go? Now what are they going to do? 
I want you to recognize in the middle of Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, in that little spot that separates the chapters in your Bible, I want you to recognize that this is a shameful spot for Abraham. Abraham is leaving Egypt with his tail between his legs. He is leaving Egypt knowing he is a failure. He's leaving Egypt knowing that he has um, betrayed the trust that God has given him. But even worse than that, and listen, this is so important, that when we fail God, we must always fail someone else. Can I just tell you that drive out of Egypt for Abraham and Sarah wasn't any fun? You are going to let me do what in Pharaoh's house? I mean, listen, husbands, there's a lot of things that we do bad. Uh, Hopefully, none of us have ever handed our wives to the Pharaoh to have his way with her, right? Let's just be real about that. Talk about an awkward car ride out of Egypt. And so, I'm sorry, Abraham is about as low as you can get. Can I just give you some pastoral advice? That when you have failed God, and you have failed others... Your quick response will be, as you're driving out of that place of failure, is to assume that God doesn't want anything to do with you. But what we're going to see is that God still has plans and purposes for Abraham. Maybe this morning you find yourself on that trip out of Egypt, your own Egypt, your own failure. And the devil is saying, you can't go back to God. God will not receive you. Your sins are too great. They're they're too sinful. They are so shameful that the last thing God wants to do is to see you. But can I remind you, and this is why I love teaching through various parts of the scripture, can I remind you that though we wander away like Abraham did, God is the good shepherd, and he goes after the wanderer. And so Genesis 13 is an opportunity It's an opportunity for us to get right with God. It's an opportunity for Abraham to get right with God. Though his sin was great, though it was shameful, God's storyline for Abraham wasn't done. And likewise this morning, though our sin may be great, and though our sin may be shame to us, let us never forget That no matter what happens, we are, as Paul said, more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Why? It's not because we did something. It's not because we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It is because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so, as we recognize that this morning, we will see that as he leaves Egypt, it's a bad day. But if we are willing to follow God and renew and find our first love once again and place ourselves in the hands of Almighty, there's a great opportunity that lies ahead. But to do that, we need to prioritize some things. In Genesis 13, you're going to see this idea of prioritizing God over other things. Let me read our text and let's jump into it. So Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that they had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. Stop there. Pause. 
great principle to learn. When you have failed God and wonder, how do I get back to God, go back to where you met God in the first place. Go back, what Abraham does is says, listen, I've, I've wandered far from God. How do I get back to God? I'm going back to the place where I experienced Him first and foremost. Let's get back there. We have a recent story of a life-defining moment at our church where a couple said that they had attended our church years ago and, and had been wandering around uh, spiritually. And the decision was, well, we've got to get right with God. We've got to get back to, to the things of God. And they said, well, how are we going to do that? And one of the spouses said, let's go back to where we first knew him in the first place. And now they're attending village again and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we've got to backtrack to where we were with God so that we can meet God. And that's exactly what Abraham does. So notice it says that this is where he called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 5. And Lot, the nephew, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them uh, dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And listen, money, right? What does money do? And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that no one can count the dust of the earth. Your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let me just pray again. Father God, we ask for your blessing on the reading and teaching of your word. Lord, may the application of it begin with me and then move to my dear friends in this place. We love you and give you praise for it all. In Christ's name, amen. E.M. Gray spent his whole life searching for the one trait that makes people successful. And he wrote an essay that's been read over and over again. It's called The Common Denominator of Success. And in it, he reveals that the chief characteristic for success in a human being's life is not hard work, it's not good luck, it's not astute human relations, although he says these traits are important. The one factor that seems to transcend all the rest is the habit of putting the first thing first. That is, having the right priorities. 
Now, we all have priorities, and our priorities are different one to another. But whether we're believers or non-believers alike, there are all priorities that we have. And those priorities are going to determine where we are going to invest the first and best of all that we do. For some, it's your marriage. For others, it's your family. For still others, it's your work. It's your favorite hobby. It's your favorite sports team. It's that special passion that you have that, that makes you who you are. It makes your blood a pump in a way that nothing else does. Now, for the world, all of those things are good and important. But for the believer, the first thing, the most important thing, the greatest priority we should have is God. It has to be God. We use this phrase a lot, being God-centered. And let me share with you what that means. It means putting God first and allowing all activity in life to flow from the premise that God's priorities are to be your priorities. To illustrate that, that means God is the center hub of your life, the wheel. And everything funnels from that hub that whatever it is, your marriage, your education, uh, your pursuits in life, your passions in life, whatever they are, good, bad, ugly, whatever they are, they all have to start with God at the center. This is what A.W. Tozer meant when he said that the Christian life must be a life that has lived in a, in a continual state of unbroken worship. That we are worshiping and praising God. This is what Paul means when he says, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all things to the glory of God because He is the first thing. He is the best thing. This is what God was telling the people of Israel when He said, listen, I am a jealous God. And therefore, you will have no other gods before me. I think it is altogether right to change that word gods, little g, gods, to priorities. I am your God, and you will have no other priority before you. I am the most important thing. I am what you should get up, be thinking about. I am what you should be going to bed, thinking about. I am the funnel by which every decision is made. It is all about me, God says. And that's what we're going to see in Genesis 13. We are going to see two men, one man who makes his priorities based on him, and another who's going to make priorities based on God. And the question we have to ask this morning, which will fundamentally change who we are and determine the course of our lives, is what is number one in our life? Is it God or is it something else? Notice a couple things about priorities. The text opens up and it tells us that in chapter 1 they've left Egypt. I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 13, they've left Egypt. And they head out. And we're told something about them. That both Abraham and Lot are incredibly wealthy. This is the first mention of wealth in the Bible. And the first mention of wealth shows us many times what wealth and possessions can do. Especially in the lives of families. It brings strife. Their possessions, their livestock have been blessed in such great ways that now the two households need to separate to create some distance from one another so that there's room to move, room to grow, because tensions are growing and strife is starting to get out of hand. 
Abraham should have, listen very carefully, Abraham should have simply told Lot, get out. Lot, go somewhere else. I'm your uncle, so I have that upper hand. I'm richer than you are. I'm greater than you are. And so you need to get out. But what Abraham does is so gracious, so generous, so magnanimous, is that not only does he say, hey, let's divide the property up, but I'm going to give you the first choice. And so he says a lot, if you choose the left, then I'll go right. If you choose the right, I'll go left. Meaning, you get to choose. And what we're going to see is, is that what Abraham chooses is to follow God, is to prioritize God. What we're going to see in Lot is he prioritizes himself. And I will tell you, you and I are one of those guys this morning. We're one of those guys. There's no in-between. Either God is our priority or something else is. Well, let's notice a couple things about priorities. First of all, priorities are defined by what captivates you. We all have priorities. Every one of us. Every kid, every teenager, every adult. We have priorities. And priorities defined by Webster's Dictionary is giving uh, supremacy or um, a point of... uh, I can't remember what Webster said. Let me look at my notes what Webster said. Webster says that it's regarding one thing as more important than the other. And so we are making a decision between two things. And so this this afternoon, you're going to go home. And some of you have the priority of watching football this afternoon. Okay? And what you've done is you've made a decision. You are going to have a relationship with football that is going to trump a lot of other relationships. It's going to trump possibly your relationship with your spouse. It's going to trump the relationship you have with your children. It's going to trump the relationship you could have with your neighbors. It's trumping maybe the relationship you might have with your schoolwork or your work work that you've got to deal with tomorrow. But you've made a decision. Why? The reason why you made that decision is you love football. I love it. I love how I feel when I watch it. I love the excitement about it. Now listen, I'm not saying that you can't have a priority of football. We all have priorities. But priorities have to be placed in the proper order or they will cause our lives to be out of alignment. And so we are making decisions based on what captivates us. Now right away, if I was to do a poll here and said... Is God your number one priority? I think the majority of us would say, yeah, yep, he is. The problem with priorities is you can talk about your priorities, but if they're not being lived out, they're not priorities at all. And so what happens is is we say that God is it. I think both Abraham and Lot would say, what's your priority? I think both of them would say, it's God. It's God. But as we're going to see, two men who would say that God is their priority, one it was true, and the other it wasn't. So how do we know where our priorities stand? Let's look at a couple tests. I see them in the text, and so let's deal with them. The first one is the calendar test. Let me ask you this morning. What does your calendar say about your priorities? What does your daily planner say about what is most important to you? What are the things that grab your attention? What does your daily routine look like? And what does it say about you? 
And the question isn't that there aren't a lot of things that we do. You're not going to hear me say that any of the things, unless it's prohibited by Scripture, that any of them are bad, but which one is most important? So look at your schedule in these last days. And ask the question, if someone's to look at my calendar, would they see that God is my number one priority? Or are they seeing all manner of secondary things being most important? And so we we talk about these things, and we need to interact with these things. And so look at your calendar. And some of us, and you're going to know right away from my physique, I'm not one of these people. The first thing they do, the investment of the morning for an hour and a half, is to go to the gym. And to invest in that. Well, that's fine. That's great. I wish I could get there. But some of you that go to the gym never spend any time in His Word. So you're physically fit and you're spiritually flabby. That's a bad priority. For some of us, we're sitting and we're watching hours of TV. Again, there's nothing. The Bible doesn't say that you can't watch TV. The Bible didn't know about TV at the time, right? But if you're investing and you look and, and, and you are, are captivated by that program, isn't it crazy? We create words. We binge watch TV, but we never talk about binging on God. And so that's a bad priority. And so we need to recognize our calendar is going to do it. Notice in the text that nowhere does Lot ever engage with God. Moses never says that when the offer is given, that Lot says, you know what, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to pray about this decision. I'm going to seek wisdom. I want to honor God in in the decision that I make. I want to make sure I do it in a wise way, in a godly way. There's nothing there. There's nothing in Lot's daily planner that says, I'm going to prioritize God. Whereas with Abraham, you see Abraham twice in our text building an altar, a place. He's wanting to create time. He's wanting to create space to make God a priority. What does your calendar say about your priority? Number two, what about your conversation? Your conversation. There are two conversations that if you prioritize God are happening on a daily basis. Number one, conversation with God. And number two, conversation with others, listen, about God. In Lot, we don't see any of that. The only prayer in all of scripture that we see is right before Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. And what Lot prays is an off-the-cuff prayer of self-interest. To put it into perspective, it would be like one of our students who doesn't study for the test, doesn't prepare for the test. The test shows up tomorrow morning, and as it's sitting on the desk, the student says, Oh, dear Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow me to pass this test. Give me the needed knowledge, Lord. You say you surely will be with me to the very end of the age. I need you now. That's Lot's prayer. Whereas Abraham... We see that he has lots of dialogues with God. In fact, the Bible says, the Bible says of Abraham that he talked with God as a friend talks with a friend. The conversation with God was ongoing. It was free-flowing. It was, it was a altogether awesome interaction between him and God. That's why God calls him his friend. But then you'll see in each of the circumstances of Abraham's life, Abraham points people that don't know God about what God is doing. 
And so his conversation with God is big. And his conversation with others about God is a big part of his life. So now let's rewind this last week. And let me ask you a hard question. How much did you spend in time one-on-one with God? One-on-one with God. Now it's fine if God's not going to be a priority. And so if you say, listen, no, God's not going to be a priority. My gym membership is, my, my work is, my relationships are, my, my TV is, my possessions are, that's fine. What I'm pushing back on are those that say, God is my priority, but I haven't talked with him all week. I haven't interacted with him. And when I talk with others, the conversation test asks the question, what are the first things that are coming out of my mouth? Am I talking about the weather? Am I talking about the football team? Am I talking about my kids? Am I talking about politics in Washington, D.C.? What am I talking about? And when was the last time in an open conversation I said, can I just tell you what God's doing in my life? I catered this last week at... Uh, at a church, and I could tell the people weren't sure what to make of me because they see me as a caterer, they don't know me as a pastor, and, and they're whispering about what God is doing. And, and I'm working, and I'm kind of just chuckling, watching the dynamic here, and they're pretty much, they think I'm, I'm a sinner, they must have heard from you guys, and no. And they're whispering, and And I come to the table, and there's probably five or six of the ladies there, and I said, if you're going to talk about our Savior, can you do it a little louder? And they were, oh, oh, you're a believer? I am. Why would you whisper about this stuff? This is our God. And they're like, who is this caterer? Where did this guy come from? And yet, so many of us, the conversation tests, we fail. We fail. And the big reason why... It's because God isn't that priority. There's one final test, and that's the checkbook test. And, and, and this one's hard. And this one, man, the pastor, don't go there. That's not your place. Well, if you're going to prioritize God, then God becomes first place, and he gets the first and best of everything with our calendar, with our conversation, and with our checkbooks. And so notice in the text what it says, and it's subtle at first. Notice that when speaking of the riches of Abraham, it says he's got gold, he's got silver, and he's got a tent. If you underline in your Bible, underline that word tent there, it is in the singular form. He has a tent. Now, he could have lots of tents. He's got gold and silver, but he has made his dwelling in one place, the place where God had called him. Now fast forward, I believe, to verse 5 in the text, and it says that Lot was rich as well. And notice what it says. It says he doesn't have one tent, but he has what? Tents. Plural. Why does he have tents? He only has one body. Why does he have multiple tents? Seemingly, Abraham's the richer guy, the more blessed guy. He's got one tent. While his nephew, less rich, he's got multiple tents. Because Lot chose his possessions over his passion for God. And so he built into his life in the here and now, and Abraham said, enough is enough. Now Abraham shows us an even greater thing. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 14 for a moment. In Genesis 14, not long after Lot settles in Sodom, does problems start to occur? And Abraham, being the 
benevolent uncle, he goes and rescues in Genesis 14 Lot from uh, destruction. It's going to be the first of multiple times that Abraham does this. Abraham is victorious in rescuing Lot from a war that's broken out. And Abraham is offered the spoils of warfare. All the gold and all the silver. But he doesn't take it. And as he's walking away from this opportunity to get richer, a gentleman comes. He's a mysterious figure. His name is Melchizedek. Notice in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. Now, the way Moses writes this, it seems like this Melchizedek is something greater than just another king, another guy. And that's why historians, Bible scholars, believe that what we Abraham is experiencing is what is called a theophanies, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ before he makes his inauguration into the manger at Bethlehem. God, uh, Jesus being fully God, was in the beginning with God, would make these appearances in the Old Testament as kind of a preview of what God is going to do. And he takes this name seemingly Melchizedek, because there's no genealogy to this guy. He comes and goes, and it even seems in the book of Hebrews to paint this guy as greater than human in many ways, that this Melchizedek comes out, he brings Abraham bread and wine, and he's a priest of God most high. Verse 19, he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And what does Abraham do? Notice, Abraham gives this Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had. So Abraham has a choice. Abraham can raise his standard of living... But instead of that, he raises his standard of giving. And what Abraham does, listen, instead of building tents for himself, he tithes to the Lord. And that's an important understanding for us. Because if we are going to uh, get the pocketbook test right, we've got to be giving to the Lord. And what it means is saying no to ourselves and saying, God, you're going to get first and the best of me. And so when people look at my checkbook, they won't see I'm about my house. They won't see that I'm about my car. They won't see that I'm about my 401k. They won't see that I'm about my kids' education or, or, or savings or, or, or my vacations. What they will see from my checkbook is first and foremost, I'm about God. I'm about Him and His work in the world. Listen, you've got one of two choices. You will either choose greed or you'll choose generosity. And many of you who are in this place today wondering why God is not having a breakthrough in your life is because God doesn't work with greedy people. He doesn't work with greedy people. And I know that's hard to hear, but if we take all that God has given us, if we take all that God has given us and never give him anything back, there's only one word for that, and that is greedy. Do you know what Lot does? Lot is the recipient of all that Abraham has. Lot tags along with his uncle. 
And Lot gets the opportunity to pick where he's going to live. Abraham, being the picture of God, says, Okay, Lot, choose what you want. Choose where you'll go. And I want you to notice a couple things. There's no deferment to say, Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Uncle Abraham. Who am I? to have that choice. You are greater. You are, are, are closer to God. I, I, I give that back to you. That is not for me to have. A lot doesn't say that. Abraham says, you go to the left, I'll go to the right. I go to the, you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot says, okay, deal. There's no words of gratitude. God had given Abraham that land. What God had given to Abraham, Abraham now was sharing with the rest of the world. He was being a blessing to his nephew Lot. And Lot never says, hey, I don't know about that. Lot never says, thank you. There's no thank you from Lot. And can I remind you that there's a lot of Lot in us. God has given us every good blessing under heaven. And he's given it to us. And have you ever stopped and said, thank you, God? Thank you. I have wealth because of you. I have life and breath because of you. And what Abraham shows us is a life that is grateful. It's a life that is generous. It's a life that is generous. And so we've got to ask the question in our calendar, in our conversations, in our checkbook, we can say until we're blue in the face, I am about God. He is my number one. But if we are really honest with ourselves, do these three tests share that? For Abraham, they do. For Lot, he fails miserably. Now there's a second truth, and none of my second and third points are as long. So keep following along. Priorities are decided by our choices. A choice is laid before Lot. He can choose to live in Canaan. Now, Moses helps us with this. Because what Lot is going to do is Lot is going to choose. This is very important for you to understand. Lot is going to choose to live outside of Canaan. How do you know that, Tim? What, what, what does Moses say? It says that when Lot lifts up his eyes in verse 10... He saw the Jordan Valley. It was well watered. It was like the Garden of the Lord, meaning the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the, land, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and he journeyed east. They separated from each other. Verse 12 is the kicker. Abraham settled in the land of what? Help me out. If he settled in the land of Canaan, where did Lot go? Outside of Canaan. We're going to see it for a moment on a map. I'll, I'll help you with this in a moment. This is of great importance. And the reason why this is so important is what Abraham is doing is he's saying, I'm going to be in the center of your will, God. I'm going to sit right where you've told me. I'm going to settle there. Lot is going to get just outside of the will of God. Why would he do that? Why would anybody walk outside of the will of God? It is because he makes a decision through a choice that he makes, and I want you to know his choice is based on what he sees. What he sees. Notice what he sees is what he saw in Egypt. What he sees is what he's heard about the Garden of Eden. 
Now, he says that it's well-watered. Why would he make a big deal about that? Because Canaan wasn't well-watered. It was in midst of famine. And so what he knows of Canaan is dust. That's what God says to Abraham. He uses an analogy. He says, you want to know what your descendants are like? Look at the ground, dusty. All of the dust particles will be like that. The dust particles, as numerous as they are below your feet, will be that of your descendants. But Lot looks up and he sees the the green and the lushness of the Jordan Valley. But he doesn't just see the financial prosperity that can come. But notice he heads to Sodom and Moses says, but wait a minute, Sodom's out of bounds. It's a place of great wickedness. And so what Lot saw, scholars believe, is what he saw in Egypt, debauchery and sin and paganism. And it was attractive to him. And so he said, I'm going to make my decision based on what I see. Now let's just stop for a moment and recognize we do that a lot. We do that a lot. The Bible calls it the lust of the eyes. Why did we buy that car? Because we saw it. Because it looked good. Why did we go after that inappropriate relationship? Because we saw her, we saw him, and it looked enticing. Why do we do the things that we do? Well, we saw what our neighbors had, and we see what we have, and, and those two things aren't compatible, and so we've got to keep up with the Joneses. Can I tell you that the fallen world makes decisions by what they see? By what they see. And sadly, Christian, you and I are tempted to do that as well. That is why the world advertises as it does. It shows us you can have this. This is yours if you'll just take it. There were billboards all over the place for Lot about Sodom. And he fell in love with it. I gotta have it. Have you ever noticed that the song of Tim McGraw runs through your mind when you see something? I like it. I love it. I want some more of it. Okay? So you go by the parking lot of cars and you look over there and you look at your jalopy and say, but I like it. I love it. I want some more of it. And you find yourself in the showroom. Because the world tempts us with things. They're good things. It's not bad that Sodom was filled with great vegetation and all of that. It was what he could get personally out of it. Now the only way that we can stop making choices about what we see, based on what we see, is to make, this is really important, to make decisions based on what God says. What God says. So I want to show you a couple maps. And I want to show you. Bethel is in the middle of the province of Ephraim. Okay, the, the, the colored area is the promised land. This is the land that God has given, okay? Bethel, if you notice, if you look from the north to the south, from the east to the west, it's smack dab in the middle. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. And the reason why he was there is because God had told him to be there. Now, in comparison to what was being offered in Sodom, it was night and day difference. He was living in a place of famine while uh, in Canaan while Sodom was enjoying lushness and great vegetation. Where does Lot go? Notice Lot goes across the Dead Sea into the land of the Moabites outside of the place of God in Canaan and he finds himself in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as a result of that, we've got a question to make. 
Am I living where God wants me to be? Or am I living where I want to be? And I don't mean that in a physical sense, but a spiritual sense. Am I residing where God wants me? Where God has told me to live? Or am I going to live on the peripheral, doing what I want, when I want, and how I want? God said, Abraham, I want you in Canaan. God says to us, family of Village Bible Church, I want you to be in the center of my will. And you've got a decision to make. I'll either do what God says, or I'll make my decisions based on what I see. A person who prioritizes God goes to the Scriptures and says, yes, the world advertises that. Yes, the world is offering that. But my God says, flee youthful lust, young man. Run away from it so that I may be honored and that I may honor Him in all that I do. One final thing we see about priorities is that priorities will determine the course of our lives. You are going to make decisions based on your priorities, and your priorities are going to send you on a trajectory. For Lot, he's going to make a decision based on what he sees, the lust of his eyes. And it is going to lead to one issue upon another issue upon another issue. And he goes that route. And God allows him to go that route. And in the end, what do we see of Lot? He's living in a cave. Why? Because his uh, hometown has been decimated by the punishment of God. He's a widower. Why? Because the woman that he meets in Sodom becomes his wife. And because she loves her hometown more than she loves God, she can't even avert her eyes from the coming destruction and is turned into a pillar of salt. Because her daughters grew because his daughters grew up in Sodom, they do the unthinkable while in the cave and defile the descendants of Lot forever. Listen to me as a wonderful reminder. When we choose to go our own way, the Bible makes it clear there's a way that seems right to man and it ends in destruction. And so go your way, and you will, you will yield a harvest of sorrow upon sorrow. Abraham prioritized God. And Abraham prioritized God, and what does God do? He doesn't do it perfectly, but he experiences the presence of God. He gets to host God uh, at, a, at a dinner at his tent. Talk about intimacy. He gets to hear of the plans of God. He lives to be a ripe old age where he sees God's plans fulfilled. And he sees the promise of God that he would have descendants that would outnumber the dust on the ground, particles on the ground, and the stars in the heavens. And so it is when we prioritize God. Now let me close with this and, and, and to get us thinking. The reason why I'm so excited about all in for tomorrow has nothing to do with the building. What it has to do is it's an opportunity for us to get right with God in our priorities. Amanda and I have spent a lot of time talking about our priorities. And we've had to make some changes. We've had to get rid of some things that we thought were priorities so that we might commit to the Lord. And so these commitment cards are, are not just numbers and a little sheet of paper for you to calculate things. What this is is a, is a physical reminder that God is in charge. That God needs to be our number one. 
And so as you prayerfully consider these things, as your leaders have already done and committed before the Lord, what God is saying is, is it going to be all about you or is it going to be all about me? Am I going to be first and foremost in your life or are you going to be first and foremost in your life? The only way that we can battle greed, listen to me, is through generosity. It's only through generosity. And Abraham shows us that. And so let me challenge all of you who say that God is your number one priority. Show it to God. Show Him. Don't just say it. Show it to God and the world. God, you are my first. You are my best. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as I close in prayer. And I want us to make the song that they're going to sing our prayer. And it goes like this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy. You're my righteousness. And I love you more. That needs to be the prayer of this church, of people who prioritize God over everything else. And to do so will be determined by the choices we make. Will we be Lot or will we be Abraham? Let's pray very quickly before we sing. Father God, take what has been shared and use it to change lives. Lord, I pray that in all that has been said and done, that you might receive all the glory. We love you, Jesus, for all that you've done in our lives. Now we give this as an offering of our prayer that we may prioritize you in all that is said and done, both here and now for the rest of our days. In Christ's name we pray, amen.